Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky. And Aaron, I am here in Las Vegas, where it is a beautiful day for a debate, a presidential debate, another one, and a different one than any we've seen before, because there's going to be a newcomer to this stage uh, tonight in Las Vegas, Aaron. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, he has uh, bought his way on. It only cost him about $400 million, give or take, to get those those national polls that he needed. Uh, and it creates a really interesting wrinkle in a volatile primary season. And he is going to be target number one. All of the candidates on that stage who have been debating now for a year are set to make him the priority because uh, he's the one who's an easy mark for people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who complain about money and politics. He's also an easy mark for tried and true Democrats like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, who say, uh, wait a minute, come lately, Democrat. You were only a Democrat like five minutes ago. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting point, and it's an interesting dynamic to add to the primary season. Uh, I'm here in Nevada where the, the, the debate is, and then uh, the, the caucuses are on Saturday. And a little bit later in the podcast, um, I'm going to share my interview with Harry Reid, the former Senate majority leader, longtime senator from Nevada, and an architect of the caucus system. He's actually um, not supporting anyone. He, he went and caucused early and caucused uncommitted entirely. Maybe a, a statement about where, where the Democratic Party is right now that he couldn't choose among among the options. Uh, interestingly, Michael Bloomberg is not one of the options. He hasn't campaigned at all in any of the early four states. He's not going to be on a ballot anywhere uh, until Super Tuesday, two weeks from yesterday. Um, but he has crashed the conversation in a really interesting way. Um, you have a uh, the first two states have produced uh, Bernie Sanders as the popular vote winner in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Pete Buttigieg as the delegate leader. Joe Biden um, was long the national front runner, although no longer appears to be the case, but staking his claim to these states upcoming. Other candidates still trying to um, put themselves into into some kind of relevance. And here comes Bloomberg set to dominate the debate conversation in a state he's not even in, Aaron. And I, I wonder for Democrats, whether this is the kind of conversation they want to be having at this moment. My gosh, it doesn't seem like it. Harry Reid should have been able to pick from the Democratic field and and maybe in his own way is sharing the same concerns Bloomberg has about Joe Biden. Biden is the reason that Michael Bloomberg got into the race. Biden, as you mentioned, was the front runner. It was clear it was supposed to be that way. But Bloomberg became convinced that Biden couldn't win and and it seems, if you take a look at the latest ABC News Washington Post poll, an increasing number of Democratic voters are likely to agree. Yeah, and, and one of the interesting things that in our poll that's that's out just just today on on Wednesday is how much those first two states have shaken things up. And you combine that with Michael Bloomberg's advertising and you see the portrait of the race. Bloomberg uh, went from the low single digits to 14 percent. Biden has slid 11 points. He's now at 17 percent. But up there at the top of this poll, Bernie Sanders, the clear national polling frontrunner, he's at 32 percent. About a third of Democrats say he's their choice. Uh, That is a surge of about eight points since the voting season began. It also gives him, Aaron, the the biggest lead that any Democrat has enjoyed in any of the ABC Washington Post polling this entire news cycle. That's twice, uh, about twice any, the largest lead that Joe Biden has ever had. So we talked about him as the the wire to wire front runner. You have to look at this race right now and say Bernie Sanders um, has the front runner status. He has 
the clearest path to a majority of delegates, even if it's a torturous path, uh, path and even if it's littered with Michael Bloomberg money bombs. You look at this and say, who's well positioned to perform well, not just in the early states, but virtually everywhere on Super Tuesday and beyond? Who has the money, the ability to replenish those resources? It's Bernie Sanders. And that reckoning about what that means to have him potentially as the nominee, the self-described Democratic Socialist, has been delayed a bit by the focus on Bloomberg. But the his rivals have nothing else to throw at him. Once you get past the Democratic Socialist, which ask any you know middle of the road Democrat, that ought to be enough to disqualify Sanders from the nomination. They haven't thrown anything else at him in their rush to attack Michael Bloomberg. It seems as if Bernie Sanders is getting a free pass. And so he's poised to win in Nevada. He seems to be doing OK in South Carolina. And then if he's off to the races on Super Tuesday, uh, how is the Democratic Party going to going to reconcile this? Are they going to suddenly jump behind Bernie Sanders as as their standard bearer? And is Elizabeth Warren scratching her head saying, how in the world did this happen? Yeah, and I think a lot of Democrats are going to be scratching their heads at the end of this. And I'll tell you that the broad dynamics feel a lot like 2016, because what I've heard from many Democratic strategists aligned across the, the, the ideological spectrum, people that work for candidates, people that are on the sidelines, their view is that Bernie Sanders supporters are going to be Bernie Sanders supporters. And throwing out more things about his past 40-something years in public life won't change their minds. And tagging him with the socialist label, talking about him as an extremist, that may actually help him on the margins in solidifying his vote. So their view is that he represents that segment of the party and that you can't really get those voters. Uh, all, but all the other candidates say, let me go for the two-thirds or so of the party that isn't the Bernie base. Well, that's a, a great argument, except as long as you've got five, six, seven candidates doing it, you're splitting it up. And that's that's really what happened with the Donald Trump phenomenon. He won early primary states with about a third of the vote. Uh, and everyone, you know, the Rubio folks, the, the, the Jeb Bush folks, John Kasich's team, they all thought just, you know, give me the head to head against Donald Trump and I can destroy him because I'm actually a Republican. Uh, I'm not a showman. Uh, I'm a conservative. Uh, and maybe they were all right, but they never got a chance to test that proposition because by the time the field narrowed enough, Donald Trump was on a roll. He had a delegate lead that he never relinquished and never could relinquish. And it make it even harder to catch someone who becomes a front runner. And that's because there are no winner take all states. So if you fall behind significantly, you can't come back with a big delegate hall because you won a, an upset state. Bernie Sanders is going to continue to pick up delegates. So it's like if your team falls behind by, you know, seven or eight runs, um, you're gonna, you, you can't just hit grand slams because he's going to keep putting runs on the board as well. He's going to get more turns at bat. And getting a lead functionally after Super Tuesday, it, it, that person becomes the prohibitive front runner because of the way the Democratic Party rules are written. And, and I, I'm wondering if any of the other Democratic candidates are going to be so eager to simply get out of the way so there can be a, a unified, moderate Democrat running against in that one-on-one -on -one slot with Bernie Sanders, because they all seem to have some kind of claim after the, the, the voting in the first couple of states. But look, I, I wonder about Sanders. We know he has the floor. The, 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 the Bernie crowd is what it is. He's solidified the, the young vote. He's solidified those who, who identify themselves as liberal or progressive. But, but it also seemed like after our exit polling in New Hampshire, Rick, that, that he had a bit of a ceiling as well. Older voters weren't buying it. Moderates weren't buying it. And, and there seemed to be a, an awful lot of Democrats up for grabs. 
if only they could find one candidate to, to, to rally around. That's right. And that, that is you know, simultaneously the fears around Bloomberg and the appeal of Bloomberg, because the Bloomberg folks are saying, look at this mess the Democrats are creating for themselves. Uh, I am the only one who can potentially uh, beat Bernie Sanders. His senior advisor saying this week, uh, the, 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 the nomination is Bernie Sanders to lose and only Mike Bloomberg's to win. And that is because of his money. Yes, it's also because of his positioning as someone that could potentially win more middle of the road voters. You're right that this would not be a thing, Michael Bloomberg, if Joe Biden was strong right now. If he had won Iowa and New Hampshire, I don't know where Bloomberg goes with his billions other than to say, I'm just going to support the Democratic nominee on the assumption that it's Biden. But the question is whether the party coalesces behind anyone, and Mike Bloomberg may be the likeliest person uh, at this moment in time, um, not having seen him on a debate, it's hard to, to judge that. And then the question also becomes, do you want to stop Bernie Sanders? And we should note, this poll shows him not only surging nationally, but also, we, you know, we ask people who has the best chance to defeat Donald Trump. That's the question of electability. And guess who leads in that metric right now? After an entire news cycle where Joe Biden was the answer to that question, it's Bernie Sanders now. He's at 30 percent on the question of who is the the best position to beat Trump. Uh, we've got uh, Bloomberg at 18 and uh, and Joe Biden slipping to 19 uh, from something that was in the 40s and the 30s throughout the campaign. So the question of electability seems to get answered by actually winning elections. You have Bernie Sanders having won the first two states, um, flexing some some real organizational muscle, showing he has passionate, dedicated supporters that maybe could rival the kind of numbers that Donald Trump can get for events. And that is itself a powerful demonstration about potential electability. So that's another reason why getting off to that early lead matters a lot. You see, you put the guy in Las Vegas for 10 minutes and he's already talking about numbers and percentages. <laughs> I really wonder how Bloomberg is going to make the electability argument on the debate stage. When he debated, uh, it was usually one on one. He's never been in a, in a field quite like this when he was running for mayor. He also uh, didn't have the kinds of pesky questions about a 12 year record that he has now. And he's not great off the cuff. Michael Bloomberg is a, is a talented manager, uh, unquestionably talented politician, but, but he, he can often and rather easily, surprisingly easily, uh, be rattled by even the simplest challenge and the simplest questions in, in covering him here. You know, I remember him not liking a particular question that I asked, and he would just you know, start screaming at you, not because you, know, you did anything wrong, but because that was just his his knee-jerk reaction to being challenged or to being questioned. And I wonder how that plays on the debate stage. I know that his team has been working uh, around the clock with him these, these last several days. He's been uh, munching on matzah covered with peanut butter uh, at a warehouse outside Manhattan where his team members are playing the different rivals. Uh, no word, though, how he's doing, but they say he is a little rusty. Uh, and, and, he's, and he's never faced this kind of spotlight. You know, it's an interesting thing, Aaron, as you know, from his time in New York, he was under the white hot glare of the New York spotlight. But because of the unique circumstances of his political rise, he's never really been fully vetted. Uh, he, he, 9-11 was the cloud under which everyone operated in the run up to his election as mayor back in 2001. And a lot of people, Aaron, I don't know if you ascribe to this theory, think he, he wouldn't have been mayor if not for Rudy Giuliani's endorsement in the aftermath of 9-11, winning as a Republican then. And then when he ran later, he was running for re-election with the machine that that he had behind him. And he was able to take advantage of uh, weak opposition in, 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 in continuing to run and kind of chart his own course. This is different now. And 
the the headlines that have come out about him are potentially damaging. Maybe in the Trump era, they take on a different light. But uh, there are a lot of things that he has said and done over a very long period covering uh, running a very complicated company over a, a long period of time, running a complicated city, um, saying in politic things, saying things that don't age particularly well, enacting policies that are quite controversial. Uh, and all of that now is fair game on a debate stage. And it leaves the Democrats, frankly, arguing about uh, these these old comments and, and portions of the record uh, at a time where Donald Trump feels stronger than ever. He's going to be here in Nevada, again, flexing some uh, some political muscle. He's got a big campaign trip out west. And, you know, back in Washington, he appears emboldened by his acquittal uh, in the Senate and has gone on on something of a, of a pardon and commutation spree uh, for white collar criminals who have deep political connections. If anything should underscore the stakes of the election, Aaron, I think it's that. But Democrats are going to find themselves kind of arguing about a lot of stuff in the in the in the pretty distant past. It almost feels like small ball to start parsing statements that Michael Bloomberg said as mayor or even before his political career, which, as you say, don't age well and are probably impolitic at best. But um, compared to the, the 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 very real challenges that Democrats believe the Trump presidency faces, it, it, it does feel a little bit small. Although I think you're you're quite right, he 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 was only uh, really vetted when he ran for re-election uh, as as mayor, and and the New York tabloids and the New York Times finally started to take a look at some of these things. Uh, but but the the voters of New York never really seemed to to care. And I also wonder if these things, as as impertinent as they probably are, uh, whether voters are are necessarily going to be. Uh, bothered by by a lot of these statements as as well uh, p- particularly in the me too era a, a lot of what he's been accused of in in uh, his earlier days at bloomberg lp doesn't seem to age particularly well he does have a stop and frisk policy when it comes to criminal justice that that democrats have moved well beyond but there's even more when it comes to his record on on race that's beyond criminal justice for a long time the bloomberg administration resisted efforts to better integrate the the fire department and and it resisted federal lawsuits uh, in in that regard and only the, the the de blasio administration finally settled and began to diversify the ranks in in a way that was deemed more acceptable so there are legitimate things to ask him about uh, but i think when you get into a 12-year record as mayor of new york city uh, what does pete Buttigieg do with that he he was mayor of of what city again uh, we did the math rick if you add up the west village and the, the, the neighborhood of Soho in Manhattan, that gets you to, I think, a little beyond the population of South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> we'll see if Bloomberg has the, the stats ready for that. We know that he is studying. We know that he is prepped. We know that he has a data-intensive team. We know he has a team that's doing a lot of savvy things on social media. They're doing a lot of the small things in intriguing ways and playing a style of politics that, that so far – um, seems particularly suited for the Trump era. They are engaging. They're under the president's skin. That may build him up. That may tear him down. It does feel, Aaron, that we are in a, a new phase of this Democratic primary campaign where you, the de- Democratic voters are actually going to see all of the choices that are in front of them. Um, we know that in about two weeks' time, the campaign essentially goes national. We leave the, the friendly confines of the first four states and, and go everywhere where the, the giant states of California and Texas and about a dozen others are all on the ballot on the same day, that first Tuesday in March. And then it is going to be an all-out battle to see who walks away with enough delegates. And, and Aaron, it just, it just feels like the Democrats are going to be in for 
a whole lot of bedwetting, as the phrase goes, <laughs> in these uh, in these coming weeks and months. And and I wonder what the Democrats are going to do because do you see either Sanders or Mike Bloomberg as the standard bearer coming out of a brokered convention? I it, no way. It's hard to imagine. And once you get into that second ballot and uh, and delegates are free to vote however they like, uh, you have the superdelegates back into into play. You know, Aaron, I have been waiting my whole career political journalism for the, the prospect of a, of a contested convention. <laughs> um, we say it every cycle. The, look, the chances are higher. The chances are higher. You know, I am I'm watching our friends at 538. We're crunching the delegate numbers almost daily. Uh, and the fact that they see that as the not not the not the not a majority likelihood, but likelier scenario than anyone actually getting a majority of pledged delegates. That that tells you something. And you're right. Once you get into that, it is um, it's going to make these squabbles feel pretty small because uh, literally it could be anyone landing with the nomination. Rick, does anyone on the debate stage who isn't Sanders or Bloomberg have any opportunity to break through in this next debate? Can Klobuchar have a moment that elevated her like it did in New Hampshire? Yeah, she sure did. She sure did last time. And I think, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on Elizabeth Warren because she has tried to stay relentlessly on message. She has been trying out a bunch of zingers uh, against Michael Bloomberg to cast herself as the uh, as the alternative there. You know, she's hoping still to be that, you know, Bernie backup, the the, the way that people can park their support afterward, be a little more acceptable to the establishment. Uh, you know, I, I, you mentioned Klobuchar. She's had so many strong debates. It feels like you have to continue to build on that. I think it's going to be hard, though, for any of these these candidates to break out of the, you know, the anti-Bloomberg noise. If this is Bloomberg versus Bernie uh, and they are the two people that, that capture the most attention, it's difficult because they're all going to be sort of running uh, similar versions of the playbook. Uh, I've heard from a lot of Democrats also that say don't count out Joe Biden. You know, the strength among African-American voters appears to be slipping, but um, it's still something he can you know, surprise some people. Um, but um, it's getting it's getting late early out there and it's going to be harder and harder for anyone to establish a toehold as the as the voting continues to roll in. With that, Aaron, um, we are going to take a quick break. When we're back, uh, my conversation with Uh, The former Senate Majority Leader, uh, a longtime senator from Nevada, now retired, now a caucus goer himself, Harry Reid. And I'd like to welcome to Powerhouse Politics, Senator Harry Reid, former five-term senator from Nevada, former Democratic leader, minority leader, majority leader, and an absolute legend in Nevada political circles. Uh, Pleasure to be with you here on the the, the caucuses. Let's start with the caucuses. Uh, I know you participated uh, the other day. How confident are you in this system that you helped create, really, the the intense focus on the caucuses? How, How confident are you that this is going to go well and certainly better than Iowa? We have the best state party organization in the country. No question about that. And we have watched the debacle in Iowa. We aren't using any of their software. We're using nothing that they had. And we feel very comfortable that we're going to have a good, respectable vote. We have added early vote. It was really the right thing to do. The state party, again, was very transparent in what they wanted to do. It used to be that everybody had to vote on Saturday, and so it really cut down the vote. But this, this way we're doing it now has really turned out. We've had some long lines, but that doesn't feel, I don't really, I'm not really concerned about that. Why? Because people are wanting to vote. We've had over 60% of the vote are people who've either voted the first time in a caucus or voted the first time, period. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your vote. Uh, I, I, I saw that you voted uncommitted. 
it seems like there's a metaphor there for a party that can't figure out where its leadership is. But, but why weren't you able well, to Well, I've, to I've always done that. I feel that it would be untoward for me to try to be a big gorilla in uh, the uh, primary process. So I just stay out of it. I've always done that. I did it. Um, I was unaffiliated with Obama, with Clinton, with everybody. I always treated everybody the same. I want, I want the caucus to uh, go unhindered by anything that I'm doing wrong. Does that mean you do have a favorite? You're just not telling anyone? You're right. Interesting. So you know the candidates really well. I, I'm fascinated by what must go through your mind to watch this primary process. You served with four of the six people who will be on that debate stage tonight. Um, I, I don't think you have a relationship with Pete Buttigieg as much, but you know Michael Bloomberg as well. But I, I, I'm curious what the relationships you have with the four you know very well tell you about what kind of, what kind of leaders they would be. What comes to mind when you think about uh, Well, the two that uh, you mentioned that I have not served with, Buttigieg, he um, is in touch with me quite often. He just uh, sent me what he wanted to do with public lands. He wanted me to look at it, and I did, and it looked up pretty good uh, with Mayor Bloomberg, he's been to my home. I knew him when he was mayor. So I feel comfortable with all six of them. Talk about the ones that you, you served alongside. Joe Biden uh, was, was already a senator for 15 years or so when you arrived in, uh, in, in the mid-'80s. What do you think a, a Biden presidency would be like? Well, Joe has been really well-trained to be a good president. He served eight years with Obama's vice president. And, of course, I like Joe Biden very much. And... We're going to have to see where the cards fall when the primary process is ended. How about Elizabeth Warren? I mean, I've been reading a little bit about the history that you have with her. She's featured you in, in one of her campaign ads that's in heavy rotation here. Well, one now. of the things that I feel very good about is I discovered Elizabeth Warren. I brought her to Washington when we had the Wall Street collapse, and she became head of the oversight committee and did a really good job. She came up with the idea to have the Consumer Affairs Department uh, Obama wanted her to serve that position. The Republicans opposed her, so she ran for the Senate. So they, they would have been better off had they agreed to have her serve there. So I think the world of Elizabeth Warren. And I read that you even you, you encouraged President Clinton to, to have, uh, have her selected as Hillary Clinton's running mate. Yeah, I thought it would be good to have a couple of women running. <laughs> what, the, t- talk to me a little bit about Bernie Sanders. A lot of people may not know that he, you had a very strong relationship with him, from what I understand, in the Senate. He came to the House. He was an independent in the House. He got elected, and he joined your caucus, and you you treated him like a Democrat. As soon as I finish this uh, interview with you, I'm going to talk to his wife, Jane. She called me, and I'll call her back. Bernie wasn't treated well in the House. I treated him very well in the Senate. I treated him like anyone else. He caucused with us. We had two independents. We had the senator from Maine and him. They were integral part of our caucus. I put him on the budget committee. People said he can't do that. He claims to be a socialist some of the time or whatever. But he was a great budget chair. So I think the world of Bernie Sanders. He was a good, good senator. I read something just just today that uh, that you had had a conversation with him and his people about a potential primary challenge in 2012 to Barack Obama, and that you helped talk him out of that. Is that is that accurate to your Well, I'm not going to get into uh, private conversations. Fact is, Obama didn't have a primary. And Harry Reid may have had something to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what you what you think about him in terms of a potential president, because I've heard it from a lot of Democrats. I'm sure you've heard the same that said 
man, democratic socialist, this is the wrong direction for the party. The party should be worried about places, frankly, like Nevada, if you're running for office, the down-ballot impact of having someone with Bernie's worldview. I know there's a lot of uh, downside to each one of our candidates. That's the way it is. You know, it's, no one's perfect. But the thing is, any poll you can find with any of our people who want to be president of the United States who are Democrats, they all, they all thump Trump. So you're not worried? You think this, the primary process will play out and whoever yes, it is beats Trump? Yes, that's right. I repeat, we will thump Trump. <laughs> I want to talk about an issue that's been in the headlines a lot here with the culinary union and, and with others, uh, centering on Medicare for all. Uh, a lot of unions will say, look, we negotiated over the years to get really good health care. We, we forewent pay raises. We gave up on other asks to get really good health care. And then Medicare for all would come in and wipe that all away. I have said from the very beginning, I'm not in favor of Medicare for all. I worked as hard on trying to establish Obamacare than I did anything else while I was in the Senate. And I think our goal should be to strengthen Obamacare because the Republicans have pecked and harmed Obamacare significantly. We need to restore that. And then look at the public option. I'm not in favor of Medicare for all. Well, you, and it wouldn't pass. Well, you, you, you fought and bled for Obamacare. You know how hard that was with 60, 59 Democratic senators. Coming in now, it just doesn't seem... Like, it, in your view, it's even something that's remotely realistic. Oh, Medi- Medicare, Medicare for, for all? all? Yeah. Oh, no, the- no I've, it's not going to pass. We talk about it all we want. It's not going to pass. It's we need to strengthen Obamacare. The Republicans have heard it in many different ways. A little slice here, a little slice there. And uh, we could do that, look at the public option, and I think we'd have a great program for America. So what do you make of the, of the discussion in the, in the context of the primary? Because it's, it's not just Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren's come out for Medicare for all. There's been shades of it from others that try to straddle this. It event. doesn't matter who comes out for it. I'm against it. I feel very strongly that, number one, it's impractical. And number two, there's not a chance in hell that it would pass. Do you feel like it's unfair to, to unions, people like the culinary workers? Well, you don't have to ask me. All you have to talk to is Dee Taylor, who represents 70,000 members of that union. They're opposed to Medicare for all. Do you think in this moment with President Trump's strength, does any of that phase you about what he can get done? He's going to draw a lot of people here in Las Vegas in a couple of days. We've seen him exerting more political influence, more political power. Do you, do you buy the argument that he's stronger now than he was a couple of months ago? Two months ago, Trump was amoral. Today he's amoral. He's a man who has done such damage to our country and, frankly, our standing in the world community. He's a man that is dangerous for so many different reasons, not the least of which he just simply does not understand government. And he surrounds himself with a bunch of people that do whatever he wants to do. For example, with Attorney General, we've never had an Attorney General like uh, Barr. He said he wants, maybe might, re- might resign. Well, he should. Do you, do you think that makes him politically impossible for him to get elected, though? I mean, no, he- I've said from the very beginning that we can't take for granted that Trump will lose. He could win, and we have to be vigilant and make sure we do everything to, that the man is not reelected. You've talked a lot about the importance of Nevada in the early process because of the diversity in this state. And we've heard that from some of the campaigns as well. You can't be the Democratic nominee unless you have a diverse cross-section of, of Democrats 
on board, Latino voters, black voters. How does that play out in Nevada, and why, why is that? How, what makes that a critical test here? The reason the pundits, after the debacle in Iowa and the election in New Hampshire, have said Nevada should be the first state is because it would be a test of our country. Nevada is like the rest of the country. We're a diverse community. We have um, a industry that is in any state in the union is number one, two, or three, the economic driver, tourism. We're number one, of course, in tourism. We're the destination spot of the world. We have a situation where we have all these public lands. We're feeling the brunt of climate change here in Nevada, and mm-hmm. we've done things to, to repulse that, to try to stay ahead of it. So I think Nevada is a state that is representative of the country, and this should be the first state that people come to test their viability. When I covered you in the Senate, something I was always impressed by was the way that you kept party unity. Um, You had extremely liberal senators who were part of your minority and majority. You had very, very conservative, moderate senators that were part of, of, uh, of your majority. Do you feel like there's something going on in today's Democratic Party that that devalues that, the need for unity. It feels like when a moderate sticks out his or her neck in the Democratic Party, they just get eviscerated for it. I think that uh, Senator Schumer's done a good job, and that's why I think it's so important that we take the majority in the Senate again. And we can do that. We're going to win in Colorado. We're going to win in Arizona. We're going to win in New Hampshire. I think we're going to win in, in uh, Alabama. And... Uh, North Carolina, we have a real shot at taking the Senate. But until then, we have a Senate that is dysfunctional. And as I've said before, the filibuster is gone. The Senate is going to become just like the House. And that's not the end of the world. You can't have a democracy where it takes 60% of the vote to win every time. So we'll have six-year terms. It's a bicameral legislature. It'll be okay if we have Senate that's comparable to the House. One more question on Michael Bloomberg, because we're going to see him on the debate stage. He chose not to participate in the caucuses here in Nevada, but he's coming in for the debate. Do you think it's a legitimate critique of him that he used to be a Republican? We've heard Joe Biden's camp talk about that just in the last couple of hours today. Uh, They're calling into question a lot of things he's done over the years, but this is a guy that he he endorsed George W. Bush uh, at his convention in 2004. When He decided to enter politics. He tried in New York to become a Democrat. The Democratic hierarchy would not let him become a Democrat. That's how he became a Republican. So Michael Bloomberg, he has, like a lot of candidates, a lot of warts and pimples. But the one thing I have to say about him is no one in the country has done more on climate and guns than he has. So I respect him. If for no other reason, those two things that he's done, I think, have been Wonderful. Uh, I heard you say earlier that, that you'll, the Democrats will thump Trump, but you also said that, that you could easily lose this thing, that, that, that Donald Trump well, could win. I didn't say we could easily lose it. I said we could lose could it lose. if we're not vigilant. It is a situation where you have a man that is amoral, a man that has done such damage to the country, paying off women that he's had affairs with. Uh, you know, one of his lawyers is already in jail. People all around him are being convicted of different crimes. It's just unbelievable that we have a president that says all the baggage that he has. But he can win again. And 
We have to do everything we can to make sure he doesn't. And in the context of the primary, you've got people that are making this case to say, we need to energize the progressive base. You've got others who say, we need to appeal to moderates. We need to win back people that voted for Obama and that voted for Trump. To you, Harry Reid, masterful tactician, former senator from this very diverse state, what's the path that you think is the best for the Democrats? You can go back and look at any presidential election cycle, and everybody says, oh, man, that... We have too many candidates. They're moving too far to the left. I don't know how we're ever going to survive. But once that nominee becomes the nominee, they always move in the right direction and recognize that they have to be the voice of the people of America, not what they think is some uh, Democratic club in Topeka thinks. So you're not concerned about Bernie Sanders supporters getting behind Bloomberg if he's the nominee or say, you know, moderate Democrats getting behind Bernie Sanders if he's the nominee? Democrats want to win. We have to defeat Trump, and we're going, we'll coalesce around whoever the nominee is. Uh, finally, um, I, I want to ask about your health and, and how you're feeling, and also just your thoughts on this moment. I mean, you, you spent a lot of time creating the modern caucus system and, and, and having Nevada get to the stage. Is there, is there some degree of satisfaction to watch it play well, out? First of way? all, let me tell you, I've had couple back surgeries. I'm not as mobile as I want to be. I'm not running marathons anymore. But I'm in pretty good health. You know, everybody knows I've had a little cancer. Uh, lost my hair, but it's coming back. So I am doing okay. I've learned a lot about cancer. I wish I didn't have to learn. But I do say to those people out there who are suffering from cancer, tremendous progress is being made every week with understanding cancer better. And so the mere fact you have cancer is not the end of the world. And, and the way this system is, is playing out, is this what you had in mind when you pushed to have Nevada and the caucuses, the first in the West caucuses and in, in the early state treatment that, well, uh, that you've been able to enjoy here? I think that it's working out quite well, and it's going to get better after this cycle. Harry Reid, former senator from Nevada, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, catching up with you. Uh, you've always been a, uh, a gracious man, and, uh, and, and I've enjoyed over the years getting to know yeah, you a little you bit and covering you. Thank, thank you, you, Senator. You Thanks, Senator. And that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics as we look forward to the next Democratic debate. Uh, for the entire team, for John Carl, for Aaron Katursky, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, we'll catch you next time.